Welcome to Archaeology in 30, a podcast produced by the Florida Public Archaeology Network. I'm your host, Mike Toman, and in this episode, we'll chat with FPAN Southwest Public Archaeology Coordinator, Rachel Kangas. We'll talk to Rachel about what's happening around Fort Myers in Southwest Florida during Archaeology Month of 2016, her fieldwork and experience in Belize, and a recent article she co-wrote that was published by Duke University Press in the scholarly journal Ethnohistory. Uh, joining us now from FPAN Southwest office in Fort Myers uh, via Skype is Rachel Kangas, the Public Archaeology Coordinator. Uh, hey, Rachel, thanks for being on. Hey, thanks for having me. And so uh, we are in the second week of March, which um, for Florida archaeologists uh, and for Floridians in, in, in general, uh, March is actually Florida Archaeology Month. So um being into the second week, how's how's it going in the Southwest, and what uh, what are you all doing down there to to celebrate it during this month? So far, it's going great, and this is exciting for me. This is my first Florida Archaeology Month with FPAN, so um, I actually just got to present this our site in this region last night. So we're talking about the Southwest, the site of Fort Center. Uh, which is just west of Lake Okeechobee and on Fish Eating Creek. So we've got a lot of different things planned this month for different talks and some other um, events that I'm going to be able to uh, to attend and kind of teach people about Florida archaeology, specifically Fort Center for this month. And so can you tell me a little bit more information about uh, Fort, Fort Center? What is Was this like a Seminole War fort or was it later? Uh, it was actually, so it was uh, used by the Seminole, and also it was a U.S. fort during the Seminole Wars, which is where it got its name, Fort Center. But the archaeology actually goes back about Woodland period, and the Woodland is our focus for this year's Florida Archaeology Month. So we've got people who are living at Fort Center uh, long before the Seminole, long before the historic period. And it's really well known for a lot of the controversy at the site over the possible early adoption of maize or uh, corn farming. So there was some early research in the 80s that was done by Sears, and he said that we had maize agriculture at this site about 2,000 years ago that we had agriculture really ever in the southeast. Some really groundbreaking research to make. His AQ publication, there have been some people who have revisited the evidence and revisited the work, and uh, it's looking more like that context that he found uh, his evidence in wasn't as secure as he thought it was. So, Dr. Thompson and colleagues went back and they published a paper in 2013 that was really trying to question what Sears' his arguments were for this maze hall, and they sort of went back and revisited some of the work that he did, and they did some of their own work. So it's looking like now we probably do not have maize farming as far back as Sears uh, said, and that, in fact, the site is very important for, for many other reasons as as a, a mound site and as a mound center in Florida. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And then and can you, can you tell, for, for people who don't know, where, where do archaeologists uh, believe that maize came from? I mean, as far as entering into, into North America and specifically in Florida, where did it... Where did it actually come from then? So when we're looking at maize, especially in Florida, we, we really don't see it, uh, as far as I know, at least until the Seminole moved in. So they're coming up from from um, from states like from Georgia. And as they're moving in, they're bringing some of this technology with them. So we know that there was maize farming in, the nor in North America 
while these people were living at Fort Center. So now we get to ask these really interesting questions about, well, why didn't they pick up farming down in Florida? And Florida just kind of is a really unique environment, and especially the farther south you go, uh, we see this really interesting mix of environment and how people are using it because you don't need farming in order to secure food for a large population of people. So we're looking at questions now of were people, did they not know about it, which is not a good argument. We know that they probably knew about it. We have long distance trade that's going potentially as far up as Wisconsin. Uh, so we know that people knew about maize farming and they knew about agriculture. So now the question is, you know, did they not need it, which the environment, especially in the Southwest, uh, is very abundant, so they probably didn't need it. And questions now of were they actively resisting this farming, ideas about farming it, and uh, sort of what that all brings with it. And you had mentioned the connections with, you know, trading up as far north as Wisconsin. Um, but if, if I'm not, I might be mistaken about this, but did maize, didn't it come from Central America originally, not not in North America? Is that where the kind of research is at now, or, or has that sort of changed? So to my knowledge, and I am not by any means an expert on this uh on this subject, but from my knowledge, it did come up from Central America. And actually, what Sears was trying to say was that his evidence in at Fort Center actually shows a connection with South America, which would be pretty interesting uh, if that were the case. But what we're seeing is more likely that maize was coming up from Mexico and from sort of the, the western side and sort of moving its way uh, along the coast and over and then eventually down into Florida. And that, that kind of leads into uh, to what I wanted to, to really kind of get into talking to you about is is some of the work that you've done. Of course, you know, I know you've done work in, in Florida, and March is all about Florida's archaeology, but you've actually not only done archaeology outside of Florida, but outside the country. So uh, I know you spent a couple seasons in, in Caracal, and your, your thesis work was on uh, another site in Belize with Maya archaeology. Uh, so, so with that, um, kind of moving out of Florida, going into to Belize, Central America. Um, can, you, can we just start with uh, who, who are, who were the Maya? So the Maya were an incredibly diverse and large group of people. And really, when we talk about Maya, we're not necessarily saying that, you know, they're all the same because they're definitely not. And when we look at different Maya sites, we see a lot of cultural differences. But what we're looking at when we say Maya as kind of a general term, we're looking at a couple different things that sort of uh, transcend these differences that we see. So we're seeing, especially when we get into the classic period, you know, we're seeing a lot of monumental architecture. We're seeing uh, similar uses of, of language and of writing systems and things like this. So we're looking at some of these kind of overarching similarities to talk about the Maya in general, but it's important to understand that at every site, you know, people were different and lives were different and the way that their cultures worked were different. Right, and so we're using that kind of broad um, uh, broad spectrum of, of Maya. Um, what what kind of area or regions did, did this, this more broad group um, encompass like where, where I know that now you did work in Belize but where where else were they at so the Maya are reaching all the way up into the Yucatan and into Mexico and as far south as uh, Nicaragua Honduras down in there so kind of this Maya heartland is in um, Guatemala and in the Paten region but we have a lot of different variation really throughout 
all of Central America is kind of considered, in a general sense at least, uh, the Maya region. And how did you how did you begin to kind of work at, at some of these Maya Mayan sites? That was actually uh, incredibly a little bit of luck and a, a lot of hard work. So I actually applied to do my master's degree at the University of Central Florida, and I was accepted under Drs. Arlen and Diane Chase, and they're the ones who work um, at Caracol, the site in Belize that I have had the pleasure of working at for two seasons. They're actually finishing up excavations for this season. I think this week they're finishing up. So they've been there for 32 years at the same site, and uh, and they're pretty well known uh, as far as Maya archaeology goes. So going to UCF and working under them, part of their requirements is that you go into the field with them. So that was really uh, a pleasure and, and a, a great experience for me. And just to talk a little bit about your experience, so what what was it like to, to Belize? <laughs> uh, it is a lot different than many stories that I've heard from other people uh, in the field. So kind of archaeology in general, you know, you kind of are learn how to sort of put your body and your mind to the test when you're in the field. And Caracol and Belize is definitely no exception. The, the way that it's set up at Caracol is we live on site. So we're about two and a half hours from the nearest town. So we live on site in thatch huts. So the roofs are made out of out of thatching from palms and we sleep on beds that are made out of sticks. So we, you know, part of what you have to pack is all of your bedding. And if you want some sort of mattress, uh, you, you have to bring all of that into the country with you. So it's uh, fairly rough living conditions, but it's also a really great experience because there is no internet, there is no phone, so you really have almost no contact with the outside world for the entire time that you're in the in the field there. And and are, is this like a, a village that that that's already there that people live at year round, or is it you know is it so far at this particular site that's a, that it's a little bit away from you know local local populations? Yeah, good question. So this is uh, where the place that we're staying, they really open it up when we are there. So the site is open year round. You can go uh, and take tours of the site at any time during the year, but nobody other than a few staff members um, and I believe some military force now is staying there year round. So when we come, they open up the huts that we that we live in while we're while we're there and while we're in the field and they kind of, you know, fix them up, fix any holes that are in the roof, make sure the, you know, the electricity is all right because we have electricity for about a few, for a few hours a night based on a generator. So, so no one is really living there uh, full time except for us when we're there for the field. And you mentioned a military presence there. Is, is this because there are security issues or are they worried about people, you know, are there problems with people going in and, and damaging this site? Uh, no, actually, the, that's a really good question. And the reason that they've got the military presence there is because the site is just really close to the Guatemalan border. So it's kind of a convenient site for them. And if anything, it's actually kind of nice to have, you know, the military presence there, you know, kind of make sure that the site is secure uh, and that everyone that's visiting is, is safe. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, that's good to have. But I mean, I, I hopefully too that that does discourage you know looters from from going to the site. I know I wouldn't mess with it. I saw a bunch of machine gun carrying guys. I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with that. And so to get more specifically, and you you mentioned that your thesis um, was was based on some of the work you had done in Belize. Can you tell me about that? 
Sure. So my thesis uh, looked at one unique building from a Maya site that's called Santa Rita Corozal, Belize. So this is in northern Belize. It's not really near Caracol at all. Uh, but the building that I looked at had two phases of construction, which this isn't unique. Maya, The Maya are known for building in a place, using that building for a while, and then tearing it down and building a new one. Uh, so, that, so that part's not unique, but th what is unique about this building is that the first phase was an early classic period round building. And this is important for two different reasons. First, uh, round buildings are fairly rare in the Maya area, no matter when we're talking about. And so it's much more common to find a rectangular shaped building. And the second reason this is unique is that the early classic period has even fewer round buildings than any other period that we're aware of. So what my thesis focused on was some pretty uh, pragmatic questions. And I basically looked at patterns that we see in Maya round buildings over time and how basically this building doesn't fit into any of those patterns. And I was also able to look at the excavation documents and artifacts from the 80s when the building was first excavated in order to better define the construction sequence over time. And we now have a better understanding of how this building sort of changed over time. And uh, my research, through my research, we now know that the round phase of the building was a lot shorter than we previously thought. So hopefully now moving forward, anyone who wants to do research, further research either on this building or early classic round buildings in general has a good test case with well-defined construction sequence and clear understanding of the changes to the building over time. And you mentioned a couple different time periods with classic. What? So how how long ago was this in relation from the the older uh, buildings and the versus the later ones? Definitely. So the early classic, which is the building that I was looking at, uh, that the early classic period is about 300 to 550 A.D. And when I'm talking about patterns that I was trying to fit it into. Um, the earlier patterns, which are from the pre-classic, which goes all the way back to about 1200 BCE, uh, we see patterns of kind of round platforms. And that's really the pattern that we're seeing with round structures and round buildings in the pre-classic. And these are interpreted as some of the, the first constructed public spaces. Um, so this building that I looked at really didn't fit into those patterns because it wasn't an open platform. It's a building. It's got low walls, um, and it's got a lot of control of space that we see that really doesn't help us interpret it as a public uh, building. And then the late classic, and especially into the terminal and early post-classic, which that time period is about 900 to 1200 AD. So this is after the building that I was looking at. And we see round structures at this point uh, normally associated with a cult of Quetzalcoatl and possibly celestial observations, depending on which research you're looking at. So the, the building that I was looking at really didn't fit into these earlier uh, platform patterns that we see, and it didn't fit into these later um, Quetzalcoatl and celestial observation buildings that we see. Hmm. And then when you say buildings, what what is actually are these are these ruins or are these structures largely intact? I mean, I assume these are, are made out of stone. Yeah, uh, good question. So when we see in the pre-classic, so the ones that are earlier than the building I was looking at, we see a lot of platforms. So they'll have some st cut stones usually, and they'll be, you know, maybe two or three stones high, and they'll just kind of be 
plastered over so they'll have a nice little floor on them. But for the most part, these early buildings are usually open. And then when we get into these late classic buildings, and especially when we get into terminal and early post-classic, this is when we have buildings that are full masonry construction. So it's a whole building that's made out of stone. So the building that I was looking at has sort of uh, low walls. So what we're thinking is that basically people would cut some stones. Uh, it's no they're normally made out of limestone. So they would cut these blocks, make the building, and then on the top they would use sort of a pole and thatch to make the rest of the wall. In honor of this year's theme of the woodland time period during Florida Archaeology Month, we'll come back to the rest of the interview after we hear an episode of Unearthing Florida with Dr. Judy Bentz. On the shores of Old Tampa Bay in a St. Petersburg city park lies a landmark of Florida Indian culture and archaeology, the Wheaton Island site. I'm Dr. Judy Benz, and this is Unearthing Florida. This thousand-year-old Indian village and mound was the first site ever discovered of the fantastic Wheaton Island culture that once stretched from Sarasota to Pensacola. The study there in 1923 by the Smithsonian Institution also was the very first scientific excavation in Florida. The Wheaton Island culture is famous for their incredibly beautiful ceramics, which are unparalleled in North America, east of the Mississippi River. Carefully handcrafted, their special occasion pottery is exceptionally thin and hard. Vessels were made into delicate shapes of animals, fruit, and people. Many pieces were painted bright red and white, and some are almost two feet tall. Florida's Whedon Island pottery is a hallmark of Native American ceramic art that is known all over the world. Dr. Judy Bentz is founder of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. Unearthing Florida is produced in partnership with WUWF Public Media. More information at unearthingflorida.org. One thing that, you know, I think that's kind of, I guess, a problem <laughs> in some ways is that, you know, specifically with some of these larger stone structures that people kind of see on television or movies and uh, this whole uh, genre of like, you know, history channel kind of aliens connections all over the world. Some theories that actually aliens built these structures. Uh, I, I'm curious, so some of the construction techniques that they used on, on these structures that you've examined, do, do the Maya people still use these same sort of techniques today in any of their uh, uh, more contemporary buildings at all or no? That is an excellent question for a couple reasons. So to answer specifically that question, um, normally what we're seeing today is um, contemporary indigenous Maya people are usually using building methods that everyone else in these uh, areas are using. So we don't really see these, you know, grand Maya stone temples being built anymore or anything like that. Um, but the second part of that question that is really important is that we do still have Maya today. So I'm glad that you brought that up because a lot of people think that, you know, the Maya just disappeared and they're all gone. And this is just kind of a, a culture that is lost to time. But in fact, we see, you know, this classic Maya where we have all of these huge temples and we have this elaborate writing system and all of that, you know, that sort of started to break down. And then when the Spanish came over, they really ended um, anything that was still going on with that really unique culture. But these people are still here. The indigenous Maya are still part of these cultures in 
this entire area today. So it's a really important point um, that indigenous people are still here, you know, and it's a really interesting kind of play that we have to have between, you know, contemporary cultures and, and how things are changing and also making sure that, that we're not sort of uh, stepping over any bounds and that the, the indigenous heritage that people in these areas have is still respected. Right. Yeah. And and um, and another thing that, that I wanted to talk to you about, and it's a more of a recent article that that you uh, uh, co-wrote, um, and that's really to do with what you mentioned of, you know, the fact that the Maya are still around and alive. Um, but another aspect is looking at the iconography of, of the ancient Maya and how it's still, uh, you know, it's it's still sort of. In, in many ways, uh, part of um, their, their culture to this day. And I think that a lot of people are really familiar um, just by watching the news of archaeologists or more specifically bioarchaeologists work studying uh, ancient diseases and genetics of the past. But your article kind of delves into another aspect of health, um, more specifically concerning mental health with uh, issues with um, uh, with suicide, can you can you tell me about this article and its and its um, connection between Maya and iconography and, and this issue with public health? Yeah, I would love to. So while I was a master's student at UCF, I had the opportunity to co-author an article with one of my former professors there. Her name is Dr. Reyes Foster, and she's a cultural anthropologist. So she studies living people and she works a lot with indigenous Maya in Yucatan, Mexico. So what she wanted to do was to trace the origins of the so-called Maya suicide goddess, who's called Ishtab. And Dr. Reyes Foster, like I mentioned, she works in Yucatan. And some of the people that she works with um, are people whose lives who have been touched by suicide. And what she's noticed through her fieldwork is that there's a really big discrepancy between the story of suicide that's told by indigenous people and the story of side that's told in the media and specifically in tabloids in Yucatan. So the tabloids are telling the story of suicide as strictly indigenous Maya male problem. They're deeply connected to this or the suicide. So what Dr. Reyes Foster noticed was when she was talking to people and specifically indigenous people that were touched by that they have no knowledge of Ishtab through, you know, through growing up or anything like that. The only reason that anyone knows about Ishtab today is because of these tabloids. So she wanted to trace the origins of Ishtab because if she's not part of these contemporary indigenous stories, we wanted to find out if she was ever part of these stories. So what we did uh, to look into this was we looked through all of the evidence that we could find. So we looked through ethno-historic records. Uh, we looked into iconography, so like paintings and murals and things like that. We also looked at Maya books, which are called codices. And we actually only have uh, three, potentially four, Maya codices that have survived the conquest. When the Spanish came over, there was this guy named Friar Diego de Landa, and his job was to try and convert the Maya to Catholicism and to Christianity. So one of the ways that he did this was by burning all of the Maya books. So he thought that they were part of their idol worship. So he had all the Maya books burned. So today we only know of three books that for sure uh, survived this book burning. And so when we were looking at all of this evidence, we were looking for two things. We were looking, one, for the origins of Ishtab or any suicide goddess. 
And two, we were looking for suicide by hanging in Maya art. So we thought maybe if we can't find a goddess, we should still be able to see this in some of the art. And what we found was that the first reference to Ishtab as a suicide goddess is actually in a book that Friar Diego de Landa wrote. So he has this quote in his book where he says that um, there were many persons who sought on slight occasions of sorrows, troubles, or sickness that they hanged themselves in order to escape these things and to go and rest in their heaven, where they said that the goddess of the gallows, whom they called Ishtab, came to fetch them. So this is the first mention that we really have of Ishtab as a suicide goddess. And all other mentions that we have of Ishtab as a suicide goddess all reference Landa's book. And now the only ancient tie that we have, so in iconography, is actually in the translation of Landa's book. So it was translated by this guy named Alfred Tazer. And when Tazer translates this section, he puts a footnote. And is, in his footnote, he says, on the Dresden Codex, so that's one of these Maya books that we have, the Dresden. So in the Dresden Codex on page 53b, there's a woman suspended by a rope around her neck undoubtedly Ishtab. So your listeners can go on the internet and uh, and look up Dresden Codex 53, page 53, and you'll find all of the top options will show you the image that I'm talking about. So when you look at the Dresden Codex, page 53, and you look at the bottom panel, which is 53B, you see a woman with her eyes closed and a rope around her neck, and she's hanging. So the first indication is, oh, okay, yeah, that's a suicide goddess, end of story. And that's kind of where the story ended for a long time. But we now know that the Dresden Codex, page 53, is actually part of an eclipse table. And that's not a suicide goddess. That's actually a moon goddess during a lunar eclipse. So when we get this, now we have to say, okay, this isn't a suicide goddess. This is a moon goddess. So is there actually any evidence of a suicide goddess? And we couldn't find any. Wow. Yeah, so we were also able to to look for hanging uh, in ancient Maya art, and we found two examples of men hanging by the neck, but both aren't looked at as suicide. They're actually looked at as captives being killed. And uh, we also found an example of a turkey that's hanging by the neck in a hunting trap, but we're pretty confident that that is not a representation of suicide. Yeah, either. I don't think turkeys... Yeah. <laughs> would commit suicide, you know? Yeah, that's that's fast. And you mentioned these these books. So these codices, these were books that these Spanish uh, religious figures were were actually writing, or, or were these what what the Maya were writing? So these are books that the Maya were writing, and the Maya have a very elaborate writing system. It's beautiful, you know. They have Maya hieroglyphs say a lot, and we are actually working still today to translate what all of these glyphs mean. But the Maya were writing books. They were, you know, put, putting up monuments with writing on them. So these codices are books that the Maya were writing, and they, you know, depending on the book that you're looking at, you can find all sorts of different information. So this one part of the Dresden Codex that I mentioned, um, it's all about how to predict eclipses. And it's amazing because not only do we have some pretty complicated math that is represented in this part of the book, which is they're talking about how to predict uh, the movement of solar bodies and all of this, um, but we also have this really incredible kind of story in pictures below. They're tying in uh, plants and the movement of these different um, 
of different planets, you know, the sun and the moon, and they're kind of narrating the story almost with images of these gods and goddesses. It's amazing to me too that these these books that they wrote have, have survived. Is that uh, did they survive? I mean, are these something that the um, that the the Spanish or, or later groups brought back to to Europe, um, or do we have? Uh, and are those the only ones that are survived, or the ones that that still survive in in uh, in the areas that Maya still live at today? So the ones that we know of, they're all actually named for uh, where they were either discovered or where they're kept. So we've got the Dresden Codex, the Paris Codex, and the Madrid Codex that we know of um, are, are definite Maya books that survived. Um, so I'm not really even sure how they survived. It must have you know, been someone who, who wanted to protect this knowledge that was contained in these books, and somehow they survived this, this book burning and the rest of the conquests and all of the years in between. Right, yeah. And so how many... How many um... You know, specifically with this article, how many sources did you end up having to actually go through? You mentioned many different ones, but did, do you have any idea of how many like images you looked at or how many pages or anything like that? Yeah, so for just the published texts that we looked through, we looked through um, over 3,000 pages of published um, text, and there were over 1,000 over 1,800 images uh, in those books. And then we also did some database searches because there are some incredible databases for Maya information, uh, like the Maya-based database, and we also looked through ArtStore and some other databases. And we looked through hundreds of different images and um, and results pages from from those. Wow. And so, um, you know, I, I know, I know you've, you know, of course, you finished your your thesis. Um, but do you have Do you have any interest or, or plans in the future of maybe going back and doing more research on on the Maya? You know, I will definitely never close that door. I learned a lot in my work in the Maya region, and it is, you know, it's an incredible place to work and an incredible place to be. You know, and the work that you can do there is really pretty, pretty incredible. So I can't say that I would never do that. But right now, um, you know, working with FPAN and focusing on Florida archaeology is actually really interesting to me. And I'm really enjoying getting to kind of jump into Florida archaeology and, and learning all about, you know, my new region down here in the Southwest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Florida's got a lot of a lot of archaeology too. Um, but uh, so, thanks so much for for being on uh, today for this episode. It was really great talking to you. Uh, I learned a lot, and hopefully, uh, other people will learn a lot too. Thanks again to Rachel Kangas for joining us on this episode of Archaeology in Thirty. For more info on the many statewide programs and events taking place throughout March, visit www.flarchmonth.org. We hope you'll join us for our next podcast, and until then, take care.